Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to all things related to data security and data privacy, brought to you by Data Protection for Business. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business. I'm recording from my home office in southwest London. This episode's part of our series of podcasts addressing security and privacy concerns coming from the coronavirus pandemic and the shift in working practices for millions of businesses across the UK and the world. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the UK Track and Trace app and explore whether Track and Trace apps are prevented from being successful due to some privacy and practicality issues. So I'm delighted to have joining me today across the airwaves from Cheshire, a software professional with over 30 years experience in software projects, many in different industries, including retail, banking, defense, and automotive. And in the last 10 years or so, the NHS. Our guest, David, has a particular interest in NHS IT um, because he founded his own software company and he works in that sector. So he's in a unique position to give us the benefit of his experience. The government's track and trace app is going to be the subject of our conversation today. Uh, and David writes regularly about track and trace apps in general in Lockdown Skeptics website, which is run by Toby Young. So David, welcome to GDPR Now. We're delighted to have you here. Thanks, Karen. Nice to be on the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for the, the kind intro. Um, as you say, I've been uh, I've been involved in software for uh, for a long time now. Well, all my all my professional career, um, and uh, I've had quite a bit of exposure to to government run uh, software projects. Uh, and so when when the uh, the coronavirus uh, thing came around, and uh, of course the inevitable, uh, there's an app for that uh, storyline came up. Um, it really caught my attention because I thought, okay, here we go. Um, it's it's going to be a super high profile government software project, and so uh, yeah, I've been paying very close attention to it uh, uh, as it uh, as it kind of went from being a, a subplot in the whole COVID drama to, to really uh, coming into the limelight. It is uh, back in back in uh, March and April. It's taken a lead role, really, hasn't it? Let's face it. And unfortunately, the government doesn't have necessarily the best track record of large IT programs, which actually in themselves are hugely problematic, regardless of which organisations trying to do them. I mean, I've got a background in software as well. So I think we both realise how difficult and complicated large technology programmes are. Indeed, yes. And, uh, you know, the, the government has, has done attempted many, many of them over the years. And, um, you know, as, as they are cancelled or fail, uh, you know, it says it'll learn the lessons. Um, but unfortunately, it, it, it seldom seems to. And, um, and, and, and the... Uh, you know, the Track and Trace app is, is the latest example of that. Um, you know, people like me uh, writing and blogging, saying, you know, uh, pointing out lessons that had been learned in previous projects and, and, and really hoping the government was, was going to listen to us about them. And uh, yeah, and uh, as we see, it, it hasn't really done that. Um, but um, yes, we can, get, we can get to the detail of that shortly. Yeah. So how did we get here then? Uh, it's the end of September. We've been talking about tra- track and trace apps all year. In fact, I did a podcast earlier in the year with uh, Sainty Law uh, from Sydney, and we talked about the Australian track and trace app back in May. So where are we now? And Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I mean, Australia were, were quite 
quick out of the traps actually with with their uh, with their track and trace app. And uh, in fact, it was based on this on Singapore's app, who were I think pretty much the first country uh, to release an app certainly based on on Bluetooth technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was back in uh, that was back in March. Um, but the conversation really got going in the UK uh, in, in April. Um, there was uh, a lot of hope uh, pinned on this approach. Uh, the Times uh, ran an article uh, on the 1st of April um, quoting Oxford University saying that uh, you know, mobile contact tracing apps would, quote, massively reduce transmission. You know, and they said you know, the maths is clear that you know, the more people that use contact tracing apps, the better the chance we have of getting ahead of this epidemic and, and eventually stopping it in its tracks. So, you know, there's a lot of faith, you know, all the way down to, you know, what sounded like a mathematical proof you know, that these apps would be uh, would, would be effective. Um, and so a huge enthusiasm for it. But then, of course, very quickly, the privacy question comes up. And uh, in fact, the EU were the first people, well, almost first people to to raise this. And they, they made a statement in April uh, saying that, you know, EU member states um, must not deploy apps uh, which store data centrally. So I mean, they said that on, on April 17th. Um, and um, security researchers around the world you know, picked up on this as well. There was, a, there was an open letter from 300 security and privacy researchers from 27 countries, not, not just the EU, yeah. Uh, that raise concerns about things like you know apps being written for this purpose, but then being repurposed, you know, for surveillance purposes later on. Yeah. Um, you know the problems of uh, you know that you, you may need to kind of record location data, so you're essentially tracking citizens, um, and then also things like mission creep. You know, you write it for one purpose, and then it it starts getting used for another purpose. So there was you know a lot of expert advice out there saying. You know, you've got to be careful with this kind of thing. Um, and also early on, back, back early on, so Apple and Google kind of stepped forward and said that they were going to be you know, helping out here and taking a very privacy-protecting approach. And um, Is that the version that they used in Singapore? Yeah, so um, th- this um, this kind of started coming to life through through um, a- April and May. It actually started out with some academic researchers in Switzerland um, who uh, di- wrote a paper um, called the Decentralized Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracing Project, the DP3T project, yeah. um, where they they basically looked at all the possible design options for these apps um, and kind of um, methodically went through and analyzed the, the, you know, the security and privacy um, implications of all the design options. And actually they showed that, you know, all the options have flaws. Yeah. Um, and, um, but the, the decentralized approach, uh, well, what became known as decentralized approach was the one that Google and Apple went for. And they said they were heavily inspired by that uh, DP3 uh, work. Um, and then, you know, kind of other countries decided to go along with that. So, you know, in, in, in April, Switzerland, Austria, Estonia, Finland, Germany, they all said they were going to use this kind of uh, decentralized design as, as highlighted by the DP3T project. But I guess at that point, the NHSX program was already up and running. Yeah, they were already talking about it. Yeah. Um, and they were, they were putting great store in it. And um so it was being discussed. Uh, it was, in fact, it was discussed in Parliament. So uh, uh, at the end of April, um, uh, the NHSX team uh, were asked to talk to the, the Parliament's Human Rights Committee, and um, there was. This is where it really started getting interesting because they um, they uh, well, it looked very much like they were going to reject the decentralised approach. 
Um, so they they said, um, and I've got a little quote here, they said the purpose for choosing a centralized database model over the more data secure and private decentralized model is that it allows for greater data analysis. Yeah. Um, and they were saying that it has public health advantages. You know, it allows health authorities to analyze how the virus is spreading. Um, it allows them to help prevent spread of the virus. You know, it allows hospitals to prepare for surges. Um, and um, and then slightly ominously, <laughs> they said it also allows for improvements of, of, of efficiency uh, of the app in future versions. So they're kind of almost signaling that mission creep is designed in, you know, for, from the start, which... Um, it's perhaps worth just considering the that position. No, clearly mission creep is an issue. Yes. Now, the idea of having a richer set of data, especially at the beginning of an epidemic, where little is known about the virus itself, how it spreads, et cetera, et cetera, isn't entirely Machiavellian in its own right, really, is it? Because the government has a responsibility to look after public health. Um, yes. And, and, and actually, here we are at the end of September. We're now having further lockdown restrictions. We've now got businesses who have, are losing confidence because they don't know when they're going to be able to open freely. Open freely. You know, there, there, there is an argument for a richer data set, centrally managed potentially, that could better inform our policy-making decisions. The problem to that becomes what you've just described, which is the potential for scope creep um, and constant tracking of individuals. Indeed. Um, So, yes, you can imagine in, you know, Matt Hancock's mind's eye, there's, you know, he's he's, he's got his map of the UK with, you know, coloured blobs of, you know, hotspots of the virus on it. And, and you know, that's, you you can kind of see, he's kind of hoping that's what the app's going to give him. Um, and that, you know, that would be great data to feed into uh, all sorts of government programs. Um, you know, it's the, it's the kind of dashboard you'd expect a kind of company CEO to have. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the fly in the ointment here is that you're talking about, um, you know, individual private citizens. Uh, you're not talking about employees of a company who operate under an employment contract, you know. So, yes, you can imagine, you know, company field engineers out there with with the company software collecting all sorts of data about a product or you know or a service and and that's all fed back uh, to you know to operations and head office in a company and you know um of course lots and lots of companies you know have have that kind of system um it's different in the public sector it's different you know we we don't all work for the government we we are, we have we have rights and liberties um and uh, you know, and from a citizen's point of view, you know, you may need to be protected from from government overreach, um, and uh, you know, and from you know, from private contractors and so on who who operate from the government. You know, you have some some legal protection. So it's it's a much trickier area to operate in, even though your kind of cause might be might be a noble one. You know, in protecting everyone's safety, you have yeah. to tread very carefully. And um, you know, this is one of the lessons that the government you know seems to struggle to learn from from previous um, you know previous healthcare projects so yes i think the i think the motivation was you know was was perfectly reasonable but um you do have to tread ever so carefully in this area um because you're going to um you're going to find yourself illegal basically or you know contributing the law and um they did in the in the beginning didn't they for the uh, initial release of the nhs x app they they did uh they released a data protection impact assessment which 
Um, they eventually got around to doing one, yes. I mean, they actually operated for a while without one and then got called out as operating unlawfully. Um, but uh, yes, they, they did eventually get around to doing one. But it, it really wasn't front of mind. I mean, they, they, the, um, I, I think the the political leaders who were driving this, um, you know, had a had, had great ambitions for it, and in, and in some ways saw it as a bit of a shortcut. And the what what you could see um, was that the the techies who were supporting them were kind of had a had a different idea in mind. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting that. Um, you know, in early May, the um, the design was published uh, for the for the NHS app. NHS X app. They published the code as well, didn't they? Indeed. And um, when you looked at the design, the design was almost deliberately um, stuffed with kind of you know cryptographic jargon and you know talked of you know the parameters to be used in elliptic curve you know, cryptographic uh, ciphers and, you know, things operating Galois counter mode and all this kind of stuff. It was really meant to kind of um, lay on the kind of the, the, the crypto tech pretty heavily to kind of, you know, squash any, you know, any kind of idea that it might not be a secure app. Um, yeah. But, you know, buried in the detail of all that, you, you realize that, in fact, you know, you, you, it couldn't actually collect that much data about you. And when you looked at the unencrypted payload, it really just had like a signal strength and a time of day and, and a random unidentified identifier. It, it had almost you know no data in it whatsoever. Um, and you kind of thought, hang on a minute, I, I'm not sure that the, the political uh, face of this is really connected to what the techies are proposing. Right. OK, because I did have a look at the design and I have to say I wasn't. Yeah, I found it quite tricky to understand not that i'm not a developer but... well it was a real kind of hardcore um, cryptographic um you know almost academic paper from the national center for Cybersecurity. and i mean those guys really know their stuff yeah which is great but one thing that struck you was that it it was a rather academic paper and it didn't really contemplate the practicalities you know the kind of human factors side of things um, you know, so, I mean, it's all well and good if, if your data is being encrypted like that and it's all been operated according to the, you know, to the theory. But we all know that in, in practice, theory and practice differ. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was an interesting example of this that emerged later in the summer. So in, in July, the Times ran an article um, saying that, that track and trace um, operatives, if you like, uh, had been caught sharing case data on Facebook um you know which is a horror story really um because it's highly sensitive personal medical data it was kind of floating around on facebook pages um and of course it just hadn't even gone into the system so yeah there was great cryptographic security in in the app but you know the people um part of part you know, in part of the wider system weren't even using the app for that bit they you know and they they just posted private data on on facebook yeah because the, the app's only part of the overall solution isn't it you've got all the operations that go on, on around it that's right. And th this was something which really the, the, the mainstream medium narrative didn't really pick up on that, you know, an app is just seen widely as just something that's on your phone and that's the end of it. But of course, there's all the kind of back end systems and, and everything that might be integrated with back there. Um, and, you know, there was no attention paid to that side of things. So the and actually to this day, you can go and have a look at the the code on, on GitHub, actually, it's all open source. You can go and have a look at the, the Android and and, uh, and the Swift code for, for, for Apple devices, but the, the server-side stuff is not on there. So, um, you know, you kind of wonder what's going on in the background. Yeah. So, so we started off going down the centralized route. Um, there was quite a lot of hue and cry. Then there was a bit of a change of heart. 
There uh, was. And actually, the change of heart's interesting um, because um, so so the, the, the design was published in some ways to kind of mollify the, the press. And then very shortly afterwards, there was a trial announced in Isle of Wight. And um, it was, I guess it was, the, the story was that it was going to prove that the technology worked because everyone was afraid that the technology, there would just be kind of technology problems as, as have been in so many government uh, projects. Um, and it, I mean, the, the were technology issues, things, you know, things operating on old devices, um, people having difficulty with network connections, uh, people not understanding how to turn Bluetooth on on their, on their devices, those kind of things. A fairly normal thing. Pretty, pretty straightforward stuff that you always find in, you know, in early, early user trials. And, and those are the kind of things, insofar as it made it into the press, those are the things that, that uh, made the headlines. But um, what, um, what wasn't said so much was that um, the app just wasn't detecting um, many exposure events. Mm-hmm. And um, we suspected this was going to be a problem because um, that's what had happened in uh, in Australia, for example. So in Australia, um, uh, they'd found almost no uh, exposure alerts uh, being generated by their software. Um, and actually similar in Singapore. Um, so we knew that this was going to be an issue. And the reason that's an issue is because... Um, the app is only uh, legal under data protection laws if it's uh, effective. So it has to be, um, it has to be effective enough to justify the personal data that it's handling. And if the efficacy isn't there, then it, it doesn't support the uh, the privacy uh, intrusion. And so if you don't get enough detections, you can't use the app. So there's a kind of chicken and egg problem in that. Yeah. In order to get the app out there, it has to be effective, but it doesn't seem to be effective enough. So we can't actually give it to people because we can't make it because it, it won't then be legal or lawful. And this was this was actually pointed out by Harriet Harman's Joint Parliamentary Human Rights Committee, and, and, that, and that was pointed out during in April that you know they doubted whether it would be effective enough to to clear the bar mm-hmm. set by the data protection uh, legislation. Um, and you know, I again, it, it's never really been admitted by the by the government. But I suspect that that's actually what happened in Isle of Wight was that just there were so few exposure notifications that um, it just couldn't clear the bar legally. And so, um, and so, really, um, it was you know, it, it was a write off just from a kind of legal standpoint. But just so, if there weren't many exposure notifications, is that because it wasn't effective, or that there just weren't that many? cases out there well who knows i mean from a legal point of view it doesn't really matter you know if, if you're not getting notifications that's it it's not effective enough um, but it, you're right i mean it may be because there weren't enough uh, you know the prevalence of the actual virus may not have been sufficient to you know to to trigger uh, trigger the software even if it was all working perfectly uh, but we also know there are just practical issues with you know the way the way that exposures are are detected yeah, and so it- yeah, let's talk about some of the practical issues. That, yeah. Because I think some of these other countries may um, have experienced similar issues. I know in Australia they had a yeah. number of practical issues uh, with their app. Yeah, I mean, Singapore's a good case in point. Um, so you know, they they had a lot of people download uh, the app, there, a kind of good proportion of the population. Uh, but there was a, a significant part of the population that uh, that didn't get the app, and that was uh, very low-paid migrant workers um mm-hmm. you know who who lived in in dormitory accommodation and and quite simply can't afford to have 
yeah. um, a fancy new iPhone or a you know a, a top of the range you know uh, Android phone, which was needed for the, for their software. Yeah. But Singapore, um, you know, found I think it was, I think the number was something like forty four thousand you know coronavirus infections, none of which were picked up by their their software because. It was all in the migrant worker community, um, and it was spreading quickly through the dormitories. But nobody had the had the software because nobody had the phones. So yeah. you got this problem that you know you need you need people to have have mobile devices. Um, and back in the UK, we you know we were getting to know that it was something they need to have mobile devices, but the right ones the and the right ones. ones. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, as we got to know more about the. Um, you know who was suffering from from COVID nineteen. It tends to be affecting you know the the elderly and the vulnerable more, and you know that's the that's the community with least likely to have um, you know to have up to date uh, mobile devices or even be using them. Well, and also um, for communities who live in close contact with each other, many people in houses um, and dormitories, for example, you know, for certain communities if they're low skilled or, or low waged yep. earners, they can't afford their own two, two bedroom flat or three bedroom. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, um, so there were, there were kind of population considerations. There were also just straightforward tech considerations. Um, so, you know, it, on a kind of, you know, um, naive level, uh, the, the way the thing works is, um, it doesn't actually track your location uh, using uh, you know, GPS uh, tracking. That would be um, that would be too expensive on uh, on your battery. So uh, yeah. it actually uses uh, Bluetooth Low Energy, which is designed to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so your your phone broadcasts uh, uh, just a random number, which is unique to your phone, um, and uh, other other phones listen out for that on Bluetooth in the same way that you might pick up another, you, know, you might pick up a printer or, or another oh. phone nearby. Yeah. Um, and uh, the phone looks at the signal strength and so tries to make an estimate based on the strength of the signal as to how far away the phone is. So in theory, you know, um, you know O-level physics, uh, inverse square law kicks in, you know, and uh, you should be able to kind of work out from the signal strength what the, how far away the transmitter is. Um, Unfortunately, uh, in practice, um, in uh, that it's not as simple as that, and your environment uh, really affects uh, the transmission of the, of the Bluetooth signal. The quality of it, yeah. And the quality of it, yes. So, um, and of course, the, the phone is not aware of its environment. So, if the phone doesn't know that it's in your bag, um, or that it's inside, you know, the, the metal cased carriage of a train or a bus, <laughs> uh, or it it's on. You know, it's uh, it's on the other side of a breeze block wall, um, and of course, all of that location and environment information is important uh, to to really accurately say you know whether you are even in contact with somebody. If you're on the other side of a wall, then you, you're not in danger of being exposed to a virus, even though you might just be six inches away from them. Yeah, exactly. A different house. It, it, absolutely, and um, there was some research done by um, some researchers at in the University of Dublin and uh, showing, you know, just how crazy some of the results were from real life scenarios. So they took phones out into supermarkets or on uh, in buses and uh, train carriages. Um, and, you know, they found that, uh, you know, on a train carriage, for example, your phone could think that you're actually nearer to the people at the other end of the carriage than you are to people sat next to you simply because of the way the, the Bluetooth signal is funneled by the, you know, the, the coachwork of the carriage. So, uh, so you've got those kind of things. Now, they they could be giving you 
you know, false positives, but they could also be um, giving you false negatives as well. Um, and of course, you also have to decide, well, just being close to somebody isn't enough. You have to be close to them for a you know, extended period of time. So you have to pick your time period. So, you know, they went 15 minutes. So, yeah, so you have to be uh, basically have a certain signal strength from the transmitter for 15 minutes, at which point the software will remember the, the ID that's been transmitted. And then from time to time, it will go back up to the cloud and just say, right, give me all the IDs that have declared themselves to be positive, brings those IDs down, checks it against the list of ones that it's remembered. And you know, if there's a match, it says, okay, I don't know who it was or when it was, but you were exposed, you know, you, you were near somebody who, you know, who's declared themselves to be positive. And that's how, that's how the Apple Google approach works. But it's actually, it's how the, the NHS um, original design was proposed to work as well. So in fact, deep down, they're both the same. Okay. It's, although the storage of the data must be different because if you've gone from decent. Well, um, in, in fact, so this is again one of the kind of slightly false narratives in the media is that the you know the central the, the, the government went for a centralized approach and that's really what the politicians were uh, were trying to justify um, and and the politicians thought they were going to get all this location data and uh, they, they'd have a really rich data set to help them you know fight the good fight. When you actually look at the design, there's there's very little data in there that's, that's stored centrally. What is done centrally with the NHS approach is the the exposure calculation. So that, you know, have I been exposed in the Apple and Google approach, that's done by the operating system on the phone, uh, whereas uh, the NHS approach, that was done centrally on a central server. So it was actually the computation that was done centrally rather than the data. So at the end of all this, you know, the the approach wasn't really suffering from a centralized data problem, you know, after, after all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so gone down, gone on. But anyway, yeah, let's keep going. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we've talked about the practicalities of, um, the phones, the, the age of the phone, yes. the environment, the phone finds itself in, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, are you, you know, are you facing the person that you're, you know, ex- allegedly exposed to while you're actually sitting with your back to them, that, that kind of thing? Um, uh, you know, the, the phone doesn't really know. Um, so it's, a when you look at it in some detail, it's a really crude uh, approach. Um, and, you know, having your phone be, you know, be sufficiently close to someone else's phone for 15 minutes or more. So uh, perhaps it's not so surprising that so few, um, you know, notifications were, were raised. Um, I mean, there's some sociological issues as well in that um, you, you have to, I mean, the phone doesn't know whether you're positive or not. So you have to tell the phone. Yeah. Um, so originally, the NHS design um, relied on the user um, notifying the phone, but that then opens opens you to um, kind of malicious actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, you can imagine if I if I'm grumpy and I've fallen out with my employer, a good way to you know prank them would be to you know hawk my phone around the office uh, for a few days. Um, and then go back home and hit the big, hit the big red button, and then that would you know cause everyone to have to isolate. Yeah. Um, you know, or not even malicious actors. You know, just if you think about somebody who's very active in a hospital, like a hospital porter, who's you know going around all the wards and all you know behind the scenes and you know all over the hospital. Um, if they test positive, um, I mean, in some ways you kind of want to alert everybody that somebody who's been all over hospital is positive, but. 
you know, you're going to have a message going out to, you know, almost every employee in the hospital to say you can't go in. You'd shut down a hospital. Which is just not happening. That's just not practical. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the NHS design originally um, contemplated this problem and said, look, we're going to have an army of clinicians analysing the data centrally and, and stopping these cascades, as they call them. But, you know, it's a huge organisational effort to do that. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, interestingly, what you're seeing coming out in, in, in various pieces in the media now is that the track and trace employees um, are saying that the organisation of that effort is, is, is somewhat lacking. You know, so having to train and operate an army of thousands of people you know, looking at this data is, is a challenge in itself. Um, and you know the the app kind of outsources that that problem to this huge army of track and trace specialists, but they you know that, you've still got the problem, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because a, a friend of mine, she um, was a retired midwife, and she was asked to come back and man the phones for the track and trace. And um, you know, even all of that required you know a bit of training, access to the system, and you're trying to onboard thousands of people at one time. You know, it's no small project or program in in and of itself. Absolutely, absolutely. So, from you know the, the whole operational element to this, uh, to rapidly ramp up people, operational processes, and technology in, in, into the a one good functioning operation is not, yes. not that easy. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, you know, I certainly um, do have some sympathies with trying to ramp up quickly. The, the, we should the army though i think yeah i mean <laughs> the, the, there's yet another layer on top of that and that's um again the kind of political claims that this was going to be a world-class uh, track and trace system um which you know invites you to go and look at other track and trace systems around the world and when you do that you realize they have access to a lot more data than than really would be acceptable in the uk so you know they, they get access to um records from the telco companies you know to kind of you know double check your location, access to your, in some cases, your financial records, you know, to look at you know, where were you spending money, you know, where were you using your, um, you know, where were you using your, uh, your, your kind of debit card and credit cards and things like that. Um, there's even an app um, which gets access to your, uh, which requires you to have access to the photos on your phone so they can have a look and see what you're doing. This is a great point because I was, it was, this question has just been fermenting in my mind which kind of brings us on to the whole is privacy a barrier to success for these apps you know i as you've just talked about the more data the app has the more useful computations and information it can can provide now in taiwan i remember i think it was taiwan they were using data travel information data sets mm -hmm to build on the information they were already getting from the app itself. But in, in the experience that you've had and, and the research you've done in this, can you think of any Western European country subjected to GDPR who, who has been doing that in terms of combining multiple data sets uh, to get the app information? Well, uh, no, I mean, the, as far as we know, nobody's doing it. And, um, in fact, um, some countries have been, uh, you know, quite good in putting their hand up and saying, we may have gone too far here. So, um, in fact, Norway, for example, um, put a pause on use of its app um, in the middle of June. And it just said, uh, you know, this is, we, you know, we're unsure as to whether we're 
uh, able to do this legally under our data protection laws. And they they actually subsequently deleted all of the user data because of um, you know the kind of concerns over over well both privacy and security. So Norway actually you know kind of stepped back from that. Um, actually, Denmark uh, Denmark was similar. It uh, it temporarily paused its its app in uh, in June and deleted and deleted data as well. Um, as you've mentioned, Australia came under you know really heavy fire um, mm. for you know not taking privacy and, and security seriously enough. Um, so yeah, I think um, you know it's the governments do pay attention to this ultimately. Um, and it's, you know, when you see what's going on in other countries, um, you can see, you know, where it could end up if they don't, uh, which is, you know, quite, quite scary, um, you know, kind of mandating use of, of apps, for example. Um, so I think, it, you know, I think it was actually the Vietnamese app where, you know, it's, it's man- mandatory for all citizens and the app requires access to your photos. I mean, just think about that for a moment. And, I'm, and I totally agree and understand but I think where it feels like we're getting to with the discussion around apps being a really great solution to this to the spread of, of any virus uh, you know today it's coronavirus you know in previous years for other countries in Asia you know they've had SARS and they've had yeah, MERS yeah. they've had, you know horrible viruses as well um, that kill a lot more people yeah. and at some point, society has to have a mechanism to discuss and work out what they're willing to give up in order to save the health of large sections of the population. Now, at the moment, from what I understand, it doesn't feel to me like, you know, yes. There needs to be a grown-up discussion about this, and uh, you know the regulators are you know the people who could be um, kind of shepherding that that conversation along. Unfortunately, the time to have that discussion isn't in the heat of a you know of, of, of fighting a um, pandemic. Pandemic, and so the legislation is being made in haste, and yeah. you don't get the best uh, you know, the best legislation out of it. Um, but yes, I think it's a you know it, it it's a discussion which is. Uh, it's going to take a long while to work out how to do this, um, and it's and it's highly politicised and uh, and therefore rather difficult. Um, but it need, we need to have we need to be realistic um, and not be looking for kind of silver bullets. Um, and yeah. so I think that that's got to be part yeah. of the discussion, um, and not you know so failures not just put down to kind of government incompetence or you know the the performance of, of one or other politician. You know, we have to kind of admit what the tech can or cannot do, uh, what is practical at these kind of scales, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and weigh the balances of, of privacy uh, versus safety. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, be, be honest about, um, you know, other risks. I mean, something that struck me was that we, you know, intensively discussed this app, but this is just one of about 80 apps on, on my phone. You know, I think, I think the average number of apps on anybody's phone is, is around about 80 and they're chock full of personal data. You know, yeah. and there's no, I will say, far fewer checks and balances than there is in the in the stuff that the government's got to put out, because that's right. A teenage daughter, and I tell you, they don't look at the T's and C's when they sign up to an app. No, absolutely. They, they use Instagram. They they turn on the microphone to record a message to their friend, 
and they mention a new pair of trainers and the next thing they know they're being those trainers are being advertised in their feed mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um they have no idea what what they're doing which is a whole other topic yeah. <laughs> well this is uh, it i mean this is why um i mean as we said at the beginning um it's one thing for a kind of commercial organization to put an app out there and uh, you know and you you, you re- realize all of a sudden your data has been used to advertise to you but when it's it's citizens and the government you do have to take on board you know um, you know that government can legislate it can it can fine you you know it has you know the, the police are part of this um you know when you have and we've seen this in other areas right with you know people um you know tweeting things and then you know the police turning up and saying that they're you know, they're, they're coming around to check their thinking about a tweet that they've just put out. You know, that's when it starts getting scary. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's a it's a balancing act between, you know, uh, safety and privacy, really. And uh, it's far from clear to me where, where that line lies at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, if this virus was killing 50 uh, percent of everybody, everybody who got it, we'd be having a very different conversation. Yes, indeed. indeed. Uh, but we're not we're not at that point. So, so, so really, the, you know, the, the practical challenges are just as relevant as the privacy challenges to, to having a, an app-based solution that's going to be really efficient and really help with solving the problem. Um, and then we've got the aspect of, okay, so, you know, do we want to give our data over to Google and Apple and other big commercial companies? Or do we trust the, the government with their data? So which yeah. actors are you going to put your faith in? Um, I know for a fact that Google, Google and Apple certainly don't pay unemployment benefits when people lose their jobs. They don't have any responsibility to support the citizens' welfare in, in this country, for example. But that doesn't mean to say that everything, that the government should be given a free hand necessarily in collecting everything is that they want to know about us. So they're really interesting conversations uh, about privacy and who you're giving your information to that um, I think for a majority of the population, these conversations are a little bit overdue. Very much so. I mean, I, you know, I, I would expect there's a lot more people thinking about privacy um, and, uh, you know, and who can really see their data um, you know, since since coronavirus, um, you know, came into all our lives, than 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 had previously done so, um, and um, you know, it, it it was almost certainly a rather niche, obscure, um, you know, subject of data protection uh, that the general public wasn't really, you know, thinking was ever relevant to them really, other than ticking a box when they sign up to something, and um, you know, and, and having to clear the cookie banner every time they go to a website, and that's probably the the, the limit of it if they thought about it at all. Um, but I think, you know, now we're, it's interesting where we, you can see both the utility of it, you know, in, in, you know, in fighting a health, um, problem and also the risks, um, in that, you know, the, the government is, is, um, you know, sorely tempted to bring in, you know, really stringent draconian legislation, you know, so, you know, ruinous £10,000 fines being given out without any, you know, recourse, you know, to, to an appeal, um, it, you know, neighbours being encouraged to kind of report on each other, you know, things which would have been unthinkable a year ago, and now are, you know, very much, um, you know, out there for our consideration. And, you know, you can see how they're supported by the data in the app that's in your pocket. 
Mm. Um, I mean, I know, you know, I've got um, relatives who, um, you know, have been asking me, well, should I, should I get this app? Um, and I've said, well, it's a decision you're going to have to make for yourself, but um, you might want to just think about what would you do if you were, um, you know, asked to isolate, you know, and, and uh, would you, you know, would you isolate just because the app told you to? Um, and, you know, do you, how, how comfortable do you feel about going out? I mean, you know, back when we were only out, allowed out for an hour a day, um, you know, and there were people who were definitely, you know, going out for more than an hour a day or more than once a day. And we're feeling like, hmm, maybe that app in my pocket is, you know, recording that. And, you know, what are the consequences going to be? So, you know, they're all very real now, these issues. They are. And if you've got location data turned on, which I tend not to, you're being tracked constantly anyway. Yes. But not by the government, by yes. other people. But it's not Google who are going to turn up and, um, and hit you with a fine. So, um, it, it, again, it's that kind of, you know. Uh, well, yeah. It's hard as, as individuals, but we watched a film last night and I'm going to put it on the show notes actually called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And I recommend everybody to watch, especially if you've got children. And, um, you know, we need to start thinking about, well, it's almost not saying it's too late, but, you know, what we give away. And, and it's a huge amount. And, you know, up till now, you, maybe no bad actors have been using that information, but that's to say that will be the same into the future. So yes. it's an amazing topic. Uh, it's very, very current, and things like the pandemic really have brought it to the fore, I think. So, so maybe a little bit of good coming out of a what has been a rather dreadful 2020. Yes, I mean, hopefully, uh, if, when all this has calmed down, um, which hopefully will be sooner rather than later, I really hope that the you know the regulators will use this opportunity to have you know the, the debate that's so long overdue, and and we'll be all so much more informed about it. And I think we'll be able to have a more grown up and realistic debate about it, rather than it just being a you know a subject that's discussed within the industry with um, privacy professionals. With privacy professionals, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I guess to to summarise, have we answered um, the question? Are you know, track and trace apps are privacy and practical issues a barrier to success? Well, I think sadly they are in some instances. Yes, I think they are. Practicalities are practicalities. Absolutely, and I think um, there's enough data there to to support that uh, that hypothesis because um, there's a danger that we we just say that you know oh well it's just the UK government isn't any good at um, at running a software project and there's a certain amount of truth in that but it's it's not, um, it, it's missing the point. Yeah. And the reason I say the data is there is because when we look at other countries, they've all had similar problems. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I, in, in some of my kind of reading around of this, I've, I've looked at other countries. Um, and, you know, if you don't mind, I'll probably just have a quick whiz around and just kind of yeah, let people know kind of what's going wrong. So, I mean, I think, you can probably bucket them in a few different ways. So I think just in terms of being intrusive, um, you know, apps. So, you know, Algeria's app, I mean, that that actually caused a, an investigation by Amnesty International. Um, you know, Q8 had a similar problem. They also ended up with Amnesty International reporting that they had the most invasive app in the world. Wow. Um, you know, places like Indonesia and Ghana, they they actually do collect your your location data off, uh, off GPS. 
um, Iran's uh, Iran's AC19 app. Um, actually, Google withdrew it from the App Store because <laughs> it was collecting so much data. Uh, we also mentioned already mentioned Vietnam. They they thought it was a good idea to access your uh, your photos. Um, so I mean that that got them into trouble. Um, so yeah, I mean you know that's the kind of intrusive uh, kind of dimension. I mean, there's just problems with reliability. Um, Iceland um, tried the Bluetooth route, uh, but they, they gave up on that. So they, I mean, those practicalities we talked about earlier, that, that actually stops Iceland from using the Bluetooth route. So it uses your location data. Uh, Japan had similar problems as well. It's had all sorts of uh, issues with its app and it, and it suspended its app at least twice. Um, you know, Denmark and Norway, uh, as we've already said, they, um, they actually you know, stopped using the app and deleted the data that had been collected. And that was um, in a privacy. That was from a privacy perspective, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's the problem of like uptake. So how do you convince yeah. people to start to to use it? And um, that's why we get all this political hoopla around the launch because you need as many people as possible to to download it. And you know this is a problem that every you know every company that's ever written an app you know wants to know how do I get people to download my app? Well, obviously a government's got a big marketing budget um, and they can get it in you know, into all the papers the most yeah. re- recent release of the app uh, which was uh, just last week uh, the, the government bought uh, you know front page you know cover advertising on every single uh, daily newspaper i mean you think of the budget for that it's huge um and uh, you know and, but i mean other other countries have gone further so so india um mandated it so it, it it's law you've got to use the app there um you know, uh, also, you know, UAE, um, they they have a kind of decentralized model, but, uh, you know, there are fines uh, for refusing to install um, or, and, and register the app once you've installed it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even, you know, countries that we might identify with more culturally, uh, you know, Germany, Ireland, France, Australia, you know, the, I think those governments must be wondering, was it worth it? Um, yeah. You know, in France, um, France had eight million downloads in the first month, um, but but got fourteen alerts from it. Um, Ireland, Ireland had only ninety one alerts uh, f- from its app. Um, Germany was was held out as a big success. Uh, it actually came up in, in in Prime Minister's questions time with uh, Keir Starmer, um, kind of poking some fun at uh, Boris Johnson that you know Germany had had it had its app. With 16 million downloads, which he's right about, but he, what he didn't mention was that it only it had only found 660 cases. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's really is a correlation between, you know, the the coverage that is needed across the population and its ability to pick up the notifications and the cases. Yes. I, don't know, I mean, I'm, I've heard the numbers about 60 percent, but I don't That's know. Right. It, it, so there was hat on i would still say that's a bit low you know yes the 60 percent figure comes from an oxford university paper where they did some modeling and they thought that 60 percent would be you know the kind of um the kind of the 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 watermark you have to pass to 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 get exposure but um actually they they claimed in that paper that um, any level of uptake would have an impact and i I think actually the data is showing that that's that that isn't the case you you know, low levels of uptake just aren't having the impact um, as we're seeing from the low levels of notifications. So it looks like you need, you know, if it is going to work at all, you need to have really high coverage. Because yeah. as you said, the practicalities, the communities that don't download it, because mm. they yeah. don't have the right phones, they can't afford to have the phones that they need, you know, 
And if, if they are communities where there's a bigger prevalence of it, then it's it's just not going to work. It's no, no not exactly, be exactly. Areas to make it effective. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and I mean, the government's just run into this with the, the very latest release. You know, they um, it, it doesn't work on iPhone six, and that's because iPhone six does not have the Apple Exposure Notification API in it. So, you know, and and you know, Matt Hong, Matt Hancock was on. Uh, BBC Breakfast, um, you know, defending this and saying, well, it's just a, it's just a small percentage of, of users that have iPhone 6 or older. But the, the problem is that a small percentage of a large number is, is still a large, you know, is, is, is a large number. So you know, it's less than 3% of people who are in that position or less, sorry, less than 3% of iPhone owners. But when you multiply it out, that's three quarters of a million people. So yeah, that's quite, you know, so that those people aren't, you know, if, if you believe there are any benefits from the app, that those those those, you, those people are not going to benefit from it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, it's a topic that I have to say I could talk about all day. Um, but I think we're going to have to finish off there. Um, we've we've covered the the practicality issues around apps for lots of different countries. We've covered the privacy issues and how some countries are far more intrusive and mandate downloading the app and increase and uh, will levy fines if you don't download it. Um, and we've got sort of answered our uh, question around, you know, is our privacy and practical issues a barrier to success? Well, we think they are. Um, so I don't know, David, do you have any final words for our listeners before we close off the show? Anything you would like them to think about as, as we close? Well, I'd encourage them all to to follow the story. I mean, it, it may just be me, but I, I find it a really fascinating uh, case study in uh, in kind of this intersection of technology and privacy um, and and kind of public policy. I think it's uh, it, it, it's it's a really fascinating area, and I think um, you know, g- given your audience, uh, I think uh, you know they should take the opportunity when the time is right to really take part in this debate. Which I think we keep coming back to saying, you know, we have to have this this grown up debate and and hopefully in, uh, um, influence uh, the the regulators in the right direction to to start you know to start you know, really shaping up the legislation so that we get get some of the benefits while still protecting ourselves from you know. Uh, from all of the all of the problems that we've we've talked about yeah. um, so i really encourage everybody to you know don't don't just sit back and, and hope it'll all work itself out do do get involved in in the debate you know talk to your uh talk to your mp get online um and uh you know uh, you use your expertise and understanding of the area to, to really influence things oh i completely concur with that um i would also encourage everybody to get involved how how we do that yet we're not quite sure but i think if enough of us ask the question we'll get there so sadly that does bring us to the end of this episode of gdpr now um if our listeners have any questions please do uh, get in touch and email me i can pass them on to david for you um if there's any other topics you'd like addressed and discussed on the show please get in touch and so finally to our listeners thanks for listening but importantly to david thank you so much for your time really appreciate it it's been a fascinating conversation and um, i look forward to speaking to you again soon so that's it from me karen heaton i hope you will join us again in the future take care stay safe thank you